turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going to be still in chapter 3 this morning. Our text this morning is chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. So if you would please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord Himself. This word that is living and powerful. Hear now the word of God. Chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul's ability to Give us not only your word, but to relate it to the Old Testament as well, so we can see the continuity of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us this morning, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We've been in Texas now about three months, and we really like Texas, don't we, boys? We really like Texas. But, you know, there's one thing that I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up my Wolverines. And I don't have to because John hasn't given up his Hokies. You know, one of the things that was most awe-inspiring about being at the University of Michigan after being at schools that didn't really have sports programs was to be in a stadium where every week they would announce that you are a part of the largest crowd anywhere watching football this weekend. And this huge crowd of 110,000 would at times during the game break out. Half of the stadium would yell, Go! And the other half would yell, Blue! And back and forth we would go. Go! Blue! Go! Blue! It's a pretty awesome sight. Now I want you to imagine it isn't a football stadium. And it's not 100,000 people, but perhaps a million people. And I don't want you to imagine a small stadium. I want you to imagine two mountains and all of the tribes of Israel, six on one mountain, six on the other. And the Levites cry, Cursed be the man who sins in this way. And a half a million people yell, Amen! And cursed be the man who sins in that way. And the other half a million yell, Amen! Echoes going throughout the entire land. That's what the Israelites did. Deuteronomy 27 tells us, before they entered the land, they went through 12 curses. And they shouted out, Amen! The law of God be kept. That's exciting. That's thrilling. That's not football. This is the backdrop that Paul gives us here for this statement. That we are justified by faith. That We cannot be justified by the works of the law. This is what would be ringing in the ears 
of the Judaizers. They would be thinking back to this glorious time in Deuteronomy. And what Paul says is, as glorious as the law is, faith in Jesus Christ is yet more glorious. Because as we shall see this morning, Paul says that there is a problem. The Jews had a problem. The Gentiles have a problem. You have a problem. I have a problem. And there is a solution. No, there is the solution, Paul says. The solution in Jesus Christ. And then finally, after he explains to us what the problem is and what the solution is, he makes clear to us how this solution is applied to us, the application of the solution. This isn't just some subject like calculus or Latin or history. This is life from the smallest to the largest of us. So let us then look at this wonderful passage here in Galatians chapter 3. That the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. The first thing that Paul says is he says that we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And that problem is that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, you may recall that last week we looked at, in verse 7, those who are of faith... One thing happens, and now he says, you know, those who are of law, those who rely on the law, it's the phrase that Paul uses here, he's continuing his train of thought, it's the exact same phrase that's found in Galatians 2.16. You remember when we looked at that? That wonderful verse, the banner of justification by faith alone, in verse 26, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, same phrase, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. Same phrase. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Same phrase. Paul's picking up his train of thought. He's given the Galatians an argument from experience, the Spirit. He's given them an argument from the Scriptures and tradition with Abraham. And now here, after having presented the positive case for faith, and justification by faith, he now presents the negative. He says, you think, perhaps, that you can be justified by works of the law. Let me tell you what the law is really about, and what the law brings about. He says, the purpose of the law is not to make us good, and not to give us life. And he takes the Galatians and us back to that memorable moment, At the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26, 27, and 28, when the Israelites are just about to enter into the promised land and the law is put before them in all its magnificence. And the magnificence of the law sounds like this, Deuteronomy 27, 16. Cursed be anyone, verse 18. Cursed be anyone, verse 19. Cursed be anyone, verse 20. Cursed be anyone. Verse 21, cursed be anyone, and you get the picture. That is the magnificence of the law. Cursed be anyone who fails to keep it. There's no blessing. There's no salvation found in the law. It's curses for those who break it. And Paul says that the law is very expansive. It's exhaustive. He says, first of all, that the law applies to everyone. 
He says, for all who rely on works of the law. Jew or Gentile? He says it much the same way in Romans 2. You may be familiar with what he says there. After having said to the Jews that those who have the law will be punished for breaking the law, he says even those who don't have the law will be punished for breaking the law because they have the law written where? On their heart. We know as a people that it is wrong to murder. We know that it is wrong to steal. We know that it is wrong to lie. We see this every day, don't we? Our children aren't lawyers. They're not versed in all the things of the Bible. And when something goes missing and we say, who took that cookie? We see this. Because they know it's wrong. It's written on their hearts. And as we get older, we distract ourselves in more innovative ways, but we still know it is wrong to break the law of God. But it's not just that the law applies to everyone, Paul says. It's not just that all who rely on works of the law. It's those who are cursed who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You see, the law is exhaustive in its detail. James puts it this way in James 2, verse 10. He says, For whoever breaks the law at one point is guilty of all. You ever think about that? When you're thinking that you're doing a pretty good job, and at least you're not like the homosexual activists, or at least you're not like the mass murderers, or at least you're not like the people who cheat on their taxes. Did you ever think that if you break the law at one point, one little white lie, one thought of unrighteous anger, one glimpse that lingers too long on a magazine ad or a television screen, that you are guilty of all, and you stand guilty before God. You see, Paul drives that point home here to the Galatians. Because, see, they had been told that if they just did a pretty good job of obeying the law, there's actually one school of thought in rabbinic Judaism of this time that says that if you obey 51% of the law, you earn heaven. There's another school of the law that said that if you only obey 99%, you're in a lot of trouble. And so you can imagine there was a lot of back and forth here. And perhaps... They, like we might be want to do, they might be want to settle somewhere at maybe 68.5% or something. Come up with a compromise. But you see, Paul says, everything, all things, and to press the point home, do you notice the phrase he uses? It's a little bit different because this is a quote from Deuteronomy. But he changes the quote a little bit. He says, all things written in the book of the law. And this phrase would cause a Jew or someone who grew up in a Jewish household to have their ears perk up. Because that was what was said to Joshua before he was to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 31 and in Joshua 1.8, the Lord said to him, Obey all the things that are written in the book of the law. And that would remind Joshua, and that would remind the Jews, and that would remind the Galatians of the long litany of statutes 
and ordinances that Moses read to them before they entered the promised land. So much so that I would imagine that the end of Deuteronomy is not bedtime reading for many of you. I imagine many of you, when you're tired, don't sit down with the book of Leviticus. Why? Because it's law after law after law after ordinance. This with a goat, that with a sheep, this with a person, this with a town, that with a that. It's weighty. That's what it will remind them of. There's so much law out there. Too much to get a grasp on. And so those who live by the works of the law try to live by their works, all the works of the law. And there's only one way that you can do this. There's only one way that you can rely on works of the law. It's what the Judaizers did. It's what the Pharisees did. And it's what modern Pharisees and Presbyterian churches do. It's what they do is they take this broad, expansive law and they get it as small as they could possibly get it. Well, you see, really, stealing only refers to actually physically taking something and then not giving it back. And you have to have an intent to steal. Right? Well, you see, this prohibition against adultery, that really doesn't mean looking at things. It only actually means the commission of actual acts. And then, of course, we have our former president who wants to parse even that out and limit it even further. Well, killing doesn't mean if I beat someone up, he doesn't die. Or if I curse someone out, it just means if I take a knife and stab them. Because you see, if I limit the law, then I can obey it. You see how easy that is? All I have to do is make the law things that I can do, and voila, I obey the law. But you see, that's not how the law works. The law is exhaustive in its detail. Now, notice also what Paul says. It's not enough if you're going to rely on works of the law just to know them. You have to do them. We can know an awful lot, but we have to actually do. You remember that series of ads that came out in the 80s? They're so popular that you're still around today. I can say it and you even know the company. Just do it. You remember what the premise of that was originally? It was that if you're going to exercise, you've got to just do it. You can't just think about that exercise is good for you. You can't just think about playing sports. You've actually got to get the gear and do it. That's what Paul says. If you want to rely on works of the law, you can't just know about the law. You can't just have memorized the law. You've got to do it. And you've got to do all of it. All the time. You don't get two weeks vacation. You don't get a week study leave. You don't get a break when you're tired or hungry or had a bad week or been set off by someone close to you. No, you never get a break. Relying on works of the law requires 24 hours a day. You actually have to even keep the law when you're asleep. Are you feeling the weight of that? I hope so, because I sure am. You see, the other thing is, it's not just about doing it. It's a matter of the heart. Because if you take time this afternoon and read Deuteronomy 27, you're going to see that all of these curses are for things that 
happen in secret. Don't move boundary markers on someone's land. Don't do this in secret. Don't make a carved idol in secret. You see, it's about our hearts, not just about our outward actions. And you see, the irony here is, for Paul, he says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. The irony is, if you try obedience to the law as a means of salvation, you're assured of being cursed. Because the law doesn't provide an escape. It brings you under condemnation. Curses are a result of sin, not of the law. It's not the law's fault that we sin and are cursed. But it's inevitable that we sin and break the law. Because the fact of the matter is, Paul says, we are lawbreakers. He says in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That is the fact of the matter. Solomon says it in 1 Kings 8. He says in his great prayer, If they sin against you, O Lord, for there is no one who does not sin. Isaiah the prophet says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Paul himself puts it this way in Romans 3. He says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned. And you start to put those dominoes up. I've got to keep all the law. If I disobey even one part of the law, I'm lost. Everybody disobeys at least one part of the law. Therefore, I'm lost. I'm under a burden. I've got a problem I can't get out from under. So what do we do? If you were a Galatian and Paul was preaching this to you, you would feel burdened because it would go against everything that you had been taught by the Judaizers. And it comes from somebody who knows what he's talking about. Do you remember that on five occasions Paul received whippings? You remember that? He describes that. You know what they did in between lashes? They had a man open the book and read out the curses to you. Because the reason you were getting cursed is because you were a lawbreaker. Paul studied the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had this. He knew all the problems. And what he says in verse 11 is, The righteous, the just, shall live. Live, not die, not be cursed. And how? By faith. And he has good pedigree for saying that. Because he says that from the Bible. He anticipates that the Galatians are crying out, just as they cried out in Acts, who can be saved? Just as the disciples said to our Lord, who then can be saved? Paul says there's only one way. You either believe or you do. You can't mix the two together. And let me tell you, doing doesn't work. So you've got to believe. There's an illustration of this as we try and keep works of the law. In ancient Greece, there was a myth of a man named Sisyphus. And his condemnation was that he had this huge rock, boulder, that he had to roll up a steep cliff, and he would roll it up, and just as he would be about to get up to the top and tip it, it would roll back over the top of him. And he'd go back to the bottom. And he would roll it up and sweat and grunt and push. And you know what happened when he got to the top that time? 
roll back over the top of them for eternity. That's what it's like to try and keep the law. The just lives by faith. This is so obvious that look how Paul puts it. He says, now it is evident. It is clear. It's obvious. Very strong language he uses. It's like, we might put it in modern colloquial parlance. Well, duh, the just shall live by faith. What are you thinking you can live by the law? You can't. And notice how Paul uses the scripture. He weaves the scriptures in and out of his argument. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. He doesn't even tell you it is written. It's in Habakkuk. It's in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. He just weaves the scripture into his life, seeking there to know how we're right with God. Not thinking, well, what would make sense? He looks to the scriptures. And what he says here in essence is this. If we would live, we must trust God to justify us through Christ. We must trust him. All we have is the promise and his word. We must trust that the Lord will keep his word. We must trust that the Lord Jesus Christ in his work was sufficient for us. We don't hedge our bets. Well, let's see. I believe in Jesus. But I think if I come to church 51 weeks a year for 20 years, I'm going to hedge my bets. Well, now wait a minute. If I support Christian private schools, if I build a wing on a school, that might. I think I could plant a church. Then God. No, we don't hedge our bets. The just shall live how? By faith. Period. No, etc. No, and this. The just shall live by faith. And what Paul's saying is that Abraham is not a special case. All who are just will live by faith. Now, what does that mean? How do we live by faith? Well, the just shall live by faith because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for us. Paul uses this same quote from Habakkuk in Romans 10. He says, The just shall live by faith. And he says it in the context of saying that Christ is the end of the law for the believer. He is the purpose of the law. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is one of the first times that Paul uses this concept of redeemed. But it should be familiar to us, right? Homemakers, what do you do when you redeem a coupon? You cut it off the box, you take it to the store, and you do what? You hand it in. It counts for something. In these days, people would think of slavery. A slave would be redeemed by someone going and paying a price for them. And then they would be set free. They would be redeemed. This is applicable to us because... If we are bound in sin and under the curse of the law, we are slaves, aren't we? 
Christ says that in John 8. He says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. We have been redeemed. And we've been redeemed by Christ. Not by a coupon. We've been redeemed by the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to give his life a ransom for many. Peter puts it this way. It's it's so stark. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In verse 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1, he says, You were not redeemed with perishable and worthless things like silver and gold. Peter? Silver and gold? Worthless? Don't think so. He says, no, but with the precious blood of Christ. This redemption had a cost. And the cost of this was the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us. For you see, everyone, all people who do not continue to do all of the things that are in the book of the law are cursed. And are to be hanged on a tree. Do you know, in your best moment, that's what you deserve? To be hung on a gibbet, the old phrase used to be. Hung up by a hook on a tree for the birds to peck at. For people to mock. And to see publicly, that's what they did with public criminals. You may remember in Joshua 10... The Canaanite kings that were conquered by Joshua, they killed them. And you know what they did? They strung them up on a tree. That's what we deserve in our best moments. Because we don't continue to do all of the things in the book of the law. Now, think about how offensive that would be in Paul's society. Paul's saying to the Jews to the Judaizers and to the Jewish society, you know the Messiah you've been waiting for? He's hung up on a tree like a common criminal, become a curse. Paul, where is your sense of being sensitive to seekers? You know, these Jews, they know the Bible. Why don't you start with something a little bit better? But you see, the interesting thing is that the church didn't flinch from this at all. This notion of Jesus dying upon a tree occurs over and over again in the Scriptures. So much so that it's kind of shocking to us because we know it's a cross. And when we think of a cross, we think of what? Two well-shaved, not two by fours, because they'd be bigger, maybe four by sixes, perfect angles, smooth, look up like a cross, right? That's what we picture a cross being. Often never the case. Usual crucifixion was find a big tree that had a short stem, get another piece of lumber, nail it crossways, and put someone up on it. A tree. And you see, that's why the apostles can say in Acts 5 that they killed Jesus, the crowd, by hanging him on a tree. Acts 5, verse 30. And then, pressing the point home, Paul does in Acts 13, he says that they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You see, this blasphemous, this ridiculous, this embarrassing notion of how Jesus Christ died is something that they glory in. Do you glory in that? See, we don't think about that with a tree, but do you know at the turn of the century, there was many a minister that said, oh, I don't need all this talk of a bloody cross. Ew. That's disgusting. Let's not speak of that. How could you possibly sing a hymn about a fountain filled with blood? Do we shrink from our doctrines that describe the glory of Jesus Christ? Or are we, like the apostles and the disciples, willing to glory in what God has done? Because you see, it's not an accident that Jesus died on a cross. It's not an accident or fortuitous that he was crucified on a tree, it's a fulfillment of what the Lord had written in Deuteronomy. Cursed shall be everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul says, praise God for it. Because if that weren't true, I wouldn't be saved. That's what I'm going to put my faith in. That's what I'm going to trust in. And he says here in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The language that he uses here is interesting. You may notice, verse 10 begins, well, let's even go up to verse 7. No, then. Verse 8, and. Verse 10, for. For it's written. Verse 11, now. Verse 12, but. These are connective words. Anyone who's ever taken a speech class and is working in speech knows you have to have what? Transitions to go from one part to the other, right? Kids, right? You see, Paul doesn't do that. He butts this Christ redeemed right up against the previous sentence. It's kind of like, whoa. Wakes us up. Makes us take notice. There's even a fancy name for it. A syndeton. Don't need to remember that. It basically means no transition. Paul wants this to be put right in front of our eyes. That this is how we are redeemed. And notice what he says. Christ redeemed us. He became not just a curse, but what? A curse for us. This is the gospel. Not just something that happened. The good news is not just an event. It's good news for us. This is the great exchange. We who are thieves, murderers, sinners, idolaters, adulterers, We are right with God because we who should be cursed have had Christ cursed for us. Now, why would a thief, a man who just robbed a bank and took the packet of money that had the dye pack in it, it blew up in his face as he runs away and he's covered in purple, why would he go into the judge and say, well, you know, judge, I'm a pretty good guy? Huh? Or the killer who's got blood all over him. Well, judge, I think you should let me go because I'm a kind and generous soul. Huh? But you see, that's what we do when we try and rely on our works. We need to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us not only our problem, and then not only the solution 
for that problem. But he makes that solution applicable to us. See what he says here in verse 14. After he gives the theology lesson, he says, so that... He says, all of this is done with the purpose that, God's purpose is, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is applied to us only by being found in Christ. It's in Christ that the blessing of Abraham comes. It's in Christ that this blessing goes out to all of the nations. Only by Christ's work and relying upon that alone can we live. And it's universal. And Paul underscores that because he says, only in Christ, that is the way the promise comes to whom? The Gentiles. Notice what he says. He says, you know those people who didn't even have the law? You notice those people that gloried in not being like the Jews? Ate whatever they wanted to eat? Did whatever they wanted to do? The blessing comes to even them in Christ Jesus. You see, the rabbis of the day believed that as long as you were in the covenant, as long as you were a part of the Jewish people, unless you did some sort of unbelievably extreme wickedness. You know, everyday, ordinary wickedness didn't really count. You had to really be wicked so that people would look at you and go, wow, you're a horrible person. Or unless you completely renounced and apostatized, took the Lord's name in vain all the time, said, I don't believe in God. I wish I was uh, a Babylonian. I wish I was a Persian. Unless you did that, you were okay. You were in. There are people today that believe that. That unless you do some sort of extreme wickedness, as long as you're in, you're born in the church, you're baptized, your parents bring you to church, you go to youth group, as long as you do that, and you don't do things that are so offensive to cause your mother to cry for weeks on end, or you don't, make vocal and obvious your hatred for Christ, you're okay and you're in. But you see, that's not what Paul says. Paul says it's only by faith that we are in Christ. And it's only by being in Christ that we can have life. You notice a little chain there in Habakkuk? Righteousness, faith, life. That's what we are called to. And being in Christ means receiving the promise. You notice what an upbeat note Paul ends here? This, what begins as a pretty big downer. The weight of the law. He says, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes on us. All of the blessings that Abraham had. To be the friend of God. To be the people of God. To have all other nations blessed in him. All the things we talked about last week. That comes to us by faith in Christ. And we also have the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, Abraham had the promise. We receive it. What a blessing 
that comes to us by faith. And it's as if Paul might say at the end of this, why would you possibly want or think that you can be right with God by obeying the works of the law? That's crazy talk, we might say. And what a comfort to those of us that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To know that when we mess up, we are guilty of all, but we're not cursed. Because another has taken our curse. And to know that we are empowered to obey the law of God because we've been given the Spirit. And that we are not just righteous by faith, but that we do what by faith? We live by faith. This is the gospel. You see how important Paul thinks it is? He keeps giving it to us over and over and over again, doesn't he? Because it's important. And this is the message that we have to bring to a lost world. It's not do better. It's not clean up your act and then you can come to church. It's not, well, just fix these things and then maybe God will smile upon you. It's that the just shall live by faith. And cursed is everyone. Americans. Russians. Africans. Japanese. Cursed is everyone that does not do all of the things that are written in the book of the law. So Paul calls you, and I call you this morning, to stop trying to find justification in works of the law. And to live by faith. To receive the Spirit. And in the Spirit, to then obey the law that God has given. Because the law is not evil. The law is not a curse. It's sin that brings about the And our sin has been provided for in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. We pray, O Lord, that you would remind us of your goodness to us in the finished, complete, testified work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would cause us to leave here with hope, with energy, with eagerness to do your will, knowing that we are right with you by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.